Well, Jeff stole my introduction on accident. Uh, my whole introduction was if you could hop in a time machine and be present at one point in the Gospels, which would you choose? You know, some might say, you know, it'd be great to be at the baptism of Christ. You know, you'd hear God the Father speak from heaven, be able to see the Spirit descending upon the Son. I mean, that's a pretty powerful moment. What about the feeding of the 5,000? I mean, how cool would that be just to see Christ performing a miracle like that? Or the Mount of Transfiguration came to mind as I kind of thought about Luke as a whole. What are some of these events that Luke records that are just so incredible? Well, the Mount of Transfiguration and to see for, for a moment the glory of Christ sort of unveiled and, and revealed. And again, to hear God the Father speak from heaven. Or, or perhaps the raising of Lazarus, maybe the Sermon on the Mount. And as incredible as all those would be, you know, I think Luke 24 might take the cake. To hear Jesus begin with Moses and all the prophets and to teach all the things concerning himself. And so our first point this morning is death and resurrection was part of the plan. It was part of the plan. Okay, so as we open our text, and Jeff read the whole text, so I'll reference verses as we go throughout, so, but I'm not going to read the whole, the whole passage. But as our text opens, our attention is drawn to these two followers of Christ. We know, and, and we'll kind of deal in the coming weeks, like how, why we know, that, that neither one of these are one of the 11 disciples that are left. You know, Judas was the 12th. He's betrayed Christ. Um, neither one of these are one of the 11. One we know his name, it's Cleopas, and the other is simply called his companion. And these guys are, are, have set out, they're walking towards a village named Emmaus, which is about seven miles from Jerusalem. That, that might mean seven miles uh, round trip. There was a city that seemed to match this description about three and a half miles from Jerusalem. But either way, about seven miles um, and along the path, they're talking about everything that has gone on in the past few days concerning Christ. And during this conversation, at, at least from these guys' perspective, uh, sort of a random third stranger shows up who just so happens to be traveling in the same direction. Now, we are told, as the readers, that it is Jesus and that Jesus' identity is actually not being revealed yet to these two disciples. Their eyes are not yet opened. So we have, as readers, what we might think of as like a, a reader's advantage. We know something that these two guys don't yet know. And that is sort of what creates the drama in, in this narrative. We're drawn into the story wondering when will these guys figure it out and how will that come to pass, right? There's a couple ways that you could kind of have tension in a story, and that's one of them. You know, I think it's like those cheesy Hallmark movies where you know two people really are in love, but they don't know the other one knows it. You already know something that they don't know. The drama consists in how is this going to be resolved. That's what happens here. We know something. We know this is Christ. These guys don't. And so as Jesus begins walking with them, he asks them a question in verse 17. The question is, what are you talking about? And their reaction 
makes it clear that they are both astonished by the question and they're saddened by the answer they're going to have to give. They're astonished by the question. They're saddened by the answer. They literally stop walking. I don't know if you've been asked something that was so, in your opinion, silly that it's like you just can't, you just got to stop and look at somebody. Well, that's what it is. So they stop, they stare, and Luke says they're, they're sad. Their countenance is sad. They're, they're gloomy. As they consider the answer that they're about to give, it brings sadness to them. And they answer somewhat sarcastically. I think Jeff even let out a little bit of a chuckle when he got here in verse 18. Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know what has happened? Right? We might say, have you been in a coma? Right? It's, it's that level of, of sarcasm in, in the question. And the irony is, since they don't recognize Jesus, it kind of turns into comedy that they are looking at the one who is really the only one who knows what's going on. And they're asking him, are you the only one who does not know what is going on? And in the face of sort of this sarcastic response, Jesus looks at them and says, what things? Right? Are you the only one who hasn't heard about these things? What things? And I just love that. I love that about Jesus. Because we know that Jesus knows the answer. Right? He's not looking for information. So why does he ask the question? We ask the question to, I, I would suggest, to draw out the heart of the disciples. To test them. Not that he needs to test them, but he, he can see their hearts, but that they might be tested. And that they might hear their own presuppositions and their own ideas about what is going on in their heart. In fact, Proverbs 20, verse 5 says, The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. Derek Kinder says about that verse, A discerning person can bring to light the, the deepest intentions of another. And that's what Jesus is doing. He is the wise counselor who's drawing out the intentions and purposes and thoughts of his disciples. Now, that's, this application here is certainly not the main takeaway, but I think that's a skill that we can grow in, a skill that helps us become like Christ, asking good questions, seeking to become wise, probing into somebody's life and heart so that their intentions are made clear, and then you know how to approach that person with the Word of God. It might help you from assuming the motives of someone else. Simply asking a good question like, what were you wanting when you did that? Can help you from assuming the worst in another brother or sister in Christ. Or it might save you from one of those arguments where you debate somebody for 30 minutes and then you realize at the end of it you actually agree with one another, but neither one of you stopped long enough to ask the question, what do you mean by that? Right. So maybe as, as we seek to parent, those of us who are parents, as we seek to maybe disciple other younger believers, or those of you who are maybe formally seeking training in biblical counseling, ask lots of good questions. That's what Jesus did. All right, and guess what these guys do? And here's why I think that's a fair point to make. Guess what the guys do? They reveal not only the facts of what had happened, right? In some ways, they just recall chapter 24, verses 1 to 12. They not only recall the facts of what happened, but they reveal their understanding of what happened. They reveal their interpretation of the events. 
And they reveal their own heart, that they're disappointed. They're disappointed with what has happened. So Jesus' line of questioning does exactly what it's meant to do. It kind of draws out the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And what do they reveal? They reveal that they had high hopes and a high regard for Jesus. Right? They call him a prophet, a mighty prophet in word and deed. So they had a relatively high view of Jesus, describing him as a prophet, mighty in word and deed before the Lord, the text says. And he was, and we've seen that. We've seen how he even uh, predicted his own death and resurrection. We've seen that he looked at the daughters of Jerusalem and warned them of impending judgment the way a prophet would warn uh, Israel of coming judgment. He is indeed a prophet, but he's much more than a prophet. He's not less than a prophet, but he's much more than a prophet. So they have a somewhat high view of Jesus, but at the same time, they reveal that they are disappointed because from their understanding, Jesus has failed to live up to their lofty expectations. We thought he was going to do more than be a great prophet before the, before the Lord. John the Baptist was that, he got beheaded. And now, this is what happens to Jesus. You can see it there in verse 21 if you actually look, look in your Bibles there. But we had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. We knew he was a prophet and he was a good one. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And they, they then saw the, the crucifixion as the event that dashed their hopes for redemption. We thought he was going to be the one to bring redemption, but obviously he's not because of the cross. You see, they were expecting deliverance as Israelites from the oppressors that were over them, the Roman government. Right? That's what they meant when they said we had hoped he would be the one to redeem Israel. Like most Jews at the time, they figured the Messiah would bring about a physical redemption, an immediate physical redemption by conquest. And these Roman occupiers would be kicked out of the land. Right? If you think about Jeremiah 14, why should you be treated as strangers in your own land? That was what these guys were feeling. We're in the land, but we're not in control of the land. There are people over us who have subjugated us. So we'd hoped that this guy would come and he would overthrow them and kick them out of the land and we might live in the land securely. So they're hoping for a physical redemption by conquest. And as far as they understand, right, the rejection by the religious leaders, that's what they say, our religious leaders and rulers turn them, him over to be crucified. Right? So as far as they understand, he's been rejected by the leadership and he's been cursed by God because he's been hung on a tree. Clearly, he's not the one who is, who is bringing redemption to Israel. So for these guys, because their eyes have not yet been opened, the rejection and crucifixion of Christ is the clear indication that Jesus is not the one that they were looking for. He might have been a mighty prophet, but he's dead now. That's what they're thinking. And again, the irony in the text is that in verse 20, when they say, like, what has happened to Jesus, 
and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. When they say that, they're actually nearly verbatim quoting Jesus' words from back in chapter 9, when he said, it must be that the Son of Man will be delivered over and crucified. But they leave out the part of the resurrection. And that's what they need to hear, and that's what they need to see. They they said he was a prophet. They quoted two-thirds of his prophecy. And so now they're disappointed. They've clearly, as you, as you kind of read the text, they've, they've heard the testimony of the women. It perplexed them. It amazed them. But they're clearly still in despair. They haven't yet affirmed the testimony of the ladies. You know, they say, well, the body's missing, but I haven't seen him. That's sort of the, the attitude. They're amazed but not convinced. Their eyes have not fully been opened to the reality that the crucifixion then is the very means by which they will receive their deliverance, and their deliverance will be far greater than a physical restoration. Right? It's a spiritual salvation from the penalty of their sin. And so what they, what they do not see yet, it's all part of God's plan. Right? It's all part of God's plan. The rejection, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the subsequent exaltation. It's God's plan. Jesus is indeed the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. But how were these guys supposed to know that? Right? How were these guys supposed to know that? Well, I think Jesus' rebuke indicates that the Old Testament properly understood points to a crucified, resurrected, and exalted Messiah. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't offer the rebuke, right? And that's our second point this morning. The first point was death, resurrection, exaltation, all part of the plan. The second point is the Scripture speaks to the plan. And when I say Scripture here, I'm talking from the perspective of these guys. It would be the Old Testament Scriptures. The Scriptures speak to the plan. Look there in verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So their lack of belief leads to a rebuke from Jesus there in verse 25. Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe. To believe what? All that the prophets have spoken. Think about what Peter said in 1 Peter 1, uh, 10. He says this, concerning this salvation. Now, that's the work that Christ has accomplished for us. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. So there's a salvation that's coming, and the prophets searched and inquired carefully. And here's what they were asking, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So the prophets were searching their own prophecies and the prophecies of others to learn about this coming salvation that was long promised. They wrote about this grace that was coming. 
And notice they knew some stuff, right? A lot of people appeal to 1 Peter 1, 10, and 11 and say, see, the, the prophets didn't know what they were writing about. They, knew, they actually knew more than I think we, we want to sometimes give them credit for because they were wondering, who is this person going to be and when will he come? Right? Peter says they knew about this coming salvation, and they, they had an idea of the, the sufferings and the subsequent exaltation of the Messiah. That's not what they were confused about. They were confused about who it will be and when it will happen. That's what they were searching for. When will this come to be true? Now think about what Peter said there at the end of 11. They were inquiring what person or time, the Spirit of Christ, and then was indicating when he predicted what? The sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Right? Now look down at verse 26. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Why was it necessary? Because the prophets wrote about it. And they had some sense about it. And they were searching the scriptures to see who and when this would come to fruition. It was necessary that Christ would suffer and that he would be glorified. It was necessary because the scriptures testify to the plan of God. Right? It was necessary because it was God's plan. And since it was God's plan, he sort of progressively revealed it as the scriptures were written. And now it's ultimately revealed in its fullness as the mystery of the gospel. The mystery is revealed in Christ. You see, these disciples had missed this significant truth. They had missed that the Messiah would actually suffer. And they missed that his suffering would actually be then, then sort of the pathway, the, the gate through which he would be glorified and exalted. That, he'd be, that he would ascend to the right hand of the Father and that he'd be given all authority in heaven on earth and he'd be granted a kingdom and that, you know, we've talked through, you know, we're, we're awaiting the, the consummation of this kingdom. But that all that would come through his suffering. All that would come through his death. So it was necessary that he suffer and that he receive glory, that he be glorified. And that's what this appearance of Jesus teaches here. Jesus is not only alive, but he's highly exalted. He's glorified in his resurrection. He has been granted all authority in heaven and earth. And he will soon, at the end of Luke 24, ascend to heaven where he will be at the right hand of the Father. So the prophets looked forward in some sense. I'm not suggesting they knew everything, but they looked forward to the death and resurrection and glorification of the Messiah. These things are not the surprise. Right? God is not the one who has thrown the curveball. Right? These things are the necessary fulfillment of his plan, his plan that he was revealing throughout the ages. And so that's what Jesus sets out to teach them then. It says, Then Jesus takes the scriptures. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures. Notice, all repeated twice there. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, things concerning himself. Right? So Moses 
He wrote the first five books of the Bible. Right? So really, it's like from beginning to end, he took all the scriptures and he interpreted them in the proper way, in the way that pointed to himself. You know, I don't think Jesus just found like, I don't think the point is, you know, there's one or two places that could have tipped you off to this. I think you think that the Old Testament properly understood is driving at this Messiah who would come, but he would have to suffer. But he would overcome that suffering and he would conquer death through his resurrection. He would be exalted. Right? So it's tempting to want to say, like, well, what did he do? Where did he go? Right? We were talking in our elder meeting last Friday evening about how there's, there's these things you come across when you're studying the Word of God or you're listening to podcasts or listening to sermons, and some of them are really fun observations, and you know, they, they, there's these connections that may or may not be there, and they're fun to think about and fun to talk about, but there's a difference. It's a different matter altogether to, to tell somebody, this is what the Word of God says, right? This is the meaning of this passage, you know, I joke sometimes there's a lot of things in the Bible that's like, well, that would make for good preaching, but I'm not sure that's what the text says, so we're not going to go there, right? So we don't want to speculate in the pulpit. Um, so then the question becomes, how can we, who don't know everything Jesus said to the disciples, sort of become better readers of our Bible, particularly our Old Testaments, in seeing how the Old Testament points forward to Christ without coming up with all these kind of crazy, you know, I'm the only one that's ever thought of this idea, you know, when I'm reading my Bible. Like, how can we read the Old Testament well in a way that looks forward to Christ without falling into all kinds of speculation? That's what I'm saying. How can we, how can we do that? And here's how. You can come to Bible Hour this morning and Jeff will help you. No, I'm, I, I'm serious about that in one sense. But before I get into some specific ways, right, let me give you just some general ideas that I think can help you. The first rule that I think would, be, would help us from, from, again, just too much speculation. Because when we come to the Bible, we want to ask, what did the original author intend to communicate when he wrote this? That's how, we, that's how we want to interpret the Bible. That's how we talk, right? When you talk to me, I want to try to understand, like, what do you mean? I don't get to tell you what you mean with your own words. All right, and so that's what we do when we come to the Bible. Well, what, do the, what does the message mean? So I think one rule that will, will help us is let the New Testament authors help us. Right? Let the New Testament authors help us. How many times in Luke have we gone back and said, oh, Luke is quoting Isaiah here, or he's quoting Psalm 2 here. Right? So much of the Old Testament is quotations and explanations of, of the Old Testament. So we can let the New Testament authors be our guide. Another thing that will help you is just keep studying and keep reading your Bible over and over and over again. God's Word is so rich that we can never mine the fullness of the riches of the Word of God in our lifetime. You're never finished. God is never finished with you teaching you the Word, applying the Word to your heart. So just keep reading. Even if everything isn't falling in place, 
and I've read it once, twice, three times, and I still have questions. Good. Keep going. Get on the train, right? We're all, we're all on that. I think, actually, I think that's the invitation that the Lord gives us. Keep studying. And I think that's what this text is for. It would be great if we had, like, full manuscript of what Jesus says. But since we don't, I think the point of the text is we're, we're, we're given an invitation to, to dive into the Word of God and keep studying and keep finding ways in which the Bible points us to Christ and glorifies Him. Right? We teased earlier, oh, we've got the reader's advantage. These two guys don't know who Jesus is. Well, guess what? They heard His words, and we didn't. So now they got the advantage, right? So what do we do? Why don't we know? I think it's because we're to be provoked to, even, even in Luke, oh, let me go back and reread Luke and see where he goes back in the Old Testament and quotes different passages. How can I find ways, even in, in Luke, that quote the Old Testament that are looking forward to a crucified, resurrected, and glorified Savior? Or we can look forward into Acts, these, these disciples and, and the others. Clearly, Jesus is going to do the same with the other disciples here. Well, well, what did they do? They went and preached, and we do have a lot of their preaching on record. And we see how they took passages of the Old Testament and said, this is about Christ. And David wrote this about Christ. So we can study the book of, book of Acts and see how the disciples preached and handled the Old Testament texts and use them even as, think about uh, Paul and Thessalonica going into the synagogue, and he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, proving to them that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. Well, what Scriptures did he have? Well, he had the Old Testament. So he took the Old Testament and he showed them how it was necessary from the Old Testament that Christ die. Uh, be resurrected, and be glorified. So we can keep studying. We're meant to study and search diligently all of the Scriptures, not just Luke, Luke and Acts. I just mentioned those as examples, but to study all the Scriptures, understanding them in the light of the finished work of Jesus Christ. So we keep reading. The third thing, just quickly, I, I think a good a good study Bible might help you if you're first just kind of getting into reading your Bible. When I became a believer at 16, they gave me a MacArthur study Bible. It was a great tool for me just to say, I don't have a clue in the world what this verse means. I can look down. I also use the ESV study Bible. I think it's a great, another great tool that I would recommend to you. It, it, again, if you, if you have questions about, is this about Christ? I think those study notes will help you. All right. So let's think more specifically then. Let's think about a few ways that the Scriptures clearly point to Christ, ways in which I don't expect you to be able to recall all five or six of these uh, things and uh, you know, uh, over potluck and just be able to spit them back out. But things, as we begin to notice, I think it will help us to become better Bible readers. How does the Old Testament point to Christ? Well, the most obvious ways are direct prophecy. That's the, that's the most obvious place to start. Prophecies that directly said what Jesus would do and be and where he would be born. We've considered uh, that servant song in Isaiah. It really begins in 52. Uh, the end of chapter 52, it goes through chapter 53. 
where where it spoke of the sufferings and the subsequent glories of the suffering servant. Right? There's really really no other way to put this together. Think about it, and I'm just going to pull kind of, not randomly, but I'm not going in a specific, I'm not going to read all of Isaiah 52, 13 through the end of the, end of 53. But think about the sufferings and the glories. Right? He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. The next verse, Isaiah 52, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. High and lifted up, sufferings of Christ. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. And then all the other passages we think about when we think of Isaiah 53, it was the will of the Lord, please the Lord to crush him. He would, by his wounds, we are healed, right? All this, this suffering, and then what does Isaiah 53 do? He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. So he's going he's gonna to suffer, he's going to be beaten, he's going to die, his grave is with the wicked, but his days will be prolonged, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. He'll be exalted. We also saw some direct prophecies quoted in the Gospel of Luke. Isaiah 7 was quoted at the birth of Christ. Right? We saw where Jesus read directly from Isaiah 61 and said, Behold, this is fulfilled today in your hearing. Right? That's Jesus literally taking the Word of God, reading it, and saying, That's about me. We've seen clear references from Daniel 7 about the Son of Man receiving a kingdom. So the, the clearest way we can see the Old Testament point in Christ is those really clear predictions, prophecies of what Christ would do in His first coming. Besides some of these predictions, we've, we've even pointed this out in Luke, there are promises that could only be fulfilled in Jesus. We've mentioned several times this promise that was given to David of a descendant who will rule forever. Well, that could only be fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the God-man. Fully man, meaning he's able to be a descendant of David. Fully God, able to rule and reign forever in one person, Jesus Christ. Right? So another way the, the, the Bible, the Old Testament, kind of points forward to Christ is these things that can only be fulfilled in Him. How's the physical descendant of David going to rule and reign forever? Well, in the God-man, Jesus Christ. So we can look at these promises that can only be fulfilled in Him. A third way, certain people in their, and their actions are also pointing forward to Christ. All right. And this is where we can get probably, we need to be careful, discerning Bible readers. So I'm going to use the most clear example of this, right? The most obvious example is Adam. Paul refers to Adam as a type of Christ, right? So there are types. There are, it it means like a pattern. Jim Hamilton defines a type this way. And this is kind of wordy, but I think it's really good. A God-ordained, author-intended, historical correspondence and escalation in significance between people, events, 
and institutions across the Bible's story. All right, he says redemptive historical story, but I think if we just take that out, it becomes a little bit easier. God-ordained, author-intended sort of correspondence or pattern, a pattern that escalates in significance between people, events, and institutions. Now, if that definition doesn't stick with you, that's okay. What did, what did Paul mean when he said Adam is a type of Christ? Well, think about what, what was true of Adam. In what way did God intend Adam to have a level of correspondence with Jesus? Well, they both served as representatives. They both served as representatives for mankind. When Adam fell, all of mankind was cast into sun. Our way of explaining that from months and months ago is like, if you take a boulder of granite and you chip it, it, what's this smaller chip made of? It's made of granite. And when it comes to Adam, we're just chips off the old block. Right? He fell into sin. We descended from him. We were born into sin. He represented us. His actions are actually accredited to us and accounted to us. Jesus, too, was a representative. But Jesus, as a type, there's this, remember the definition, there's not only this correspondence, they serve, serve a similar role somehow, but there's this escalation in significance. We were credited with Adam's son. But if we are united to Christ, we are credited with, his, with the righteousness of his perfect record. Right? Jesus stands as the representative for all those who are united to him, who would come to him and, in faith and confess their sins and their need for a Savior and trust in his death and resurrection. Then Adam's works no longer stand for you. Jesus' works stand for you. Well, our, so we see that people like Adam are pointing us forward to Christ. We'll point out another way Adam does that in a second. But our definition said these, these, these types, these patterns, these pictures, they're not limited to uh, just people, right? He said people, events, institutions, right? So a way we... A way we talked about this even maybe one or two weeks ago, I don't, really, I don't remember at this point, but we said Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. So what's happening? Well, the Old Testament had established these three offices. There were prophets, there were priests, and there were kings. And Jesus is, is the fulfillment of those. He is the perfect, he is the prophet. He is the priest who sanctifies his people. Right? And he's the king who rules over his people. So it takes these sort of institutions that had an important role in the old covenant and in history, and it kind of points forward. What did we need? We needed a perfect high priest. We needed a perfect prophet. We needed a perfect eternal king. And so there's that not only correspondence, but there's that escalation. If you're struggling to capture that idea, right? I know that's kind of hard. Like Paul, Paul, I think, alludes to a similar idea in Colossians chapter 2. Maybe this will resonate with you. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17 says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Now, those are Jewish uh, regulations, right? It's very clear in the context of 
Colossians. And what does Paul say? These things are a shadow. They're a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. So the Sabbath observance was actually meant to be pointing forward to Christ who would win our salvation and we can rest in Him. We can lay down any effort to earn our own salvation. We don't have to work for it. We can find rest in Christ because he, when He died, He said, it is finished. The Sabbath was a shadow. Jesus is the substance, right? I think that's a similar idea to, to types. So uh, I, don't, I don't want to... Spend forever here, but the offerings, as you read your Old Testament, the offerings, the sacrifices, the religious holidays were not the final goal, right? They were signs pointing forward to Christ. They were clues along the journey that were help, meant to help people recognize Christ when He came. These things were good, but they were not ultimate. They were good, but they were not ultimate. They were pointing forward to Christ. You know, the, the joke I've used before is it's like taking your kids to Disneyland and you're going to drive from South Dakota. I don't know. It's probably, I don't even know how many hours. But you, you get into Florida and you see your first sign that says Disneyland or Disney World. I don't know which one is there. 40 miles. And you're like, all right, kids, let's turn around. Right? That's what it is to settle for the sign. Right? And, and so Paul's point in Colossians 2 is, don't go back. Don't go back to law because those things were pointing forward to Christ. To settle for the, the, the old covenant is, is to settle for the sign and to look at the Disney World sign and say, now we're headed back because we've, we've reached our destination. You have not. All right, another way, number five, I think. The repeated failures of everyone in the Bible points to the need for a Savior who would pay the price for sin and defeat it once for all. Right? We saw this in Luke chapter 4 when Jesus was tempted. So in chapter 3, Luke takes the genealogy all the way back to Adam, and it says Adam is a, uh, uh, the son of God, right? a son of God. Not like Jesus is the son of God, but he, he's produced by God from the dust of the ground. And so you see that, and then it goes right into Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. So we argued that what Luke is trying to do there, he's trying to get us to think about Adam. And again, as a representative of mankind, well, what did Adam do? He failed, and now here's Christ, our greater Adam, our, our representative. So Adam was tempted in the garden and failed. Right? Well, his failure points to a need. We see the promise there in Genesis 3.15 of coming salvation. And then God chooses the people of Israel, and he, he builds them up, and, and he delivers them uh, from the bondage of Egypt, and they're in the wilderness, and what do they do? They just rebel. So Israel, the, the, who was also called a son right, in Exodus, meant to be a light to the nation, a kingdom of priests, kind of intermediaries to the nations, meant to mediate God's truth and God's blessing to the world. Well, well they failed. And now you have Christ who comes in Luke chapter 4. He's tempted in the wilderness, and he passes the test as our righteous representative. So he was tempted and did not sin, perfectly obedient, and therefore could be the righteous substitute. 
is the Son of God who perfectly can represent us before God and God to us. Think also just quickly about the giving of the law. Right In the wilderness, God gave Moses the law. Well, what are we talking about? We're talking about the failures of people point to the need of a Savior. Well, one of the purposes of the law was to teach us that we need a Savior. We can't keep that thing. The law was a taskmaster to teach us our failure and point us for a, uh, to the need for a Redeemer. So these are just some, again, just some ways that as we read our Bibles, we might be thinking about how this helps us see Christ more clearly. And the goal, right, the goal is not just to know things. Okay, that's why I said it's okay if we have to reject some speculation that sounds really fun and cool. It might make for good preaching. Because the goal isn't just to know things and to sound smart and to, and to find your hope in, in that sort of thing. The goal is that we might see the wisdom of God the wisdom of God and the glory of Jesus Christ in the pages of Scripture. We behold the Lord. We behold the Lord, and our hearts are drawn toward Him. And then we're conformed to the image of Christ as we are taught and we're reminded and as we read of these glorious truths of the gospel. And I think that's our, we'll go quickly through point three, uh, our last point this morning, the scriptures powerfully speak to us about our reconciliation with God through Christ. The scriptures powerfully speak to us about our reconciliation with God through Christ. So kind of back to the narrative, as they draw near to Emmaus, Jesus acted as if he was going to keep on uh, traveling. Now, why would he do this? I read a lot of people got really worked up about this. Like, why would Jesus pretend to do this? This is, well... I think it's similar to his line of questioning earlier. Right? He's going to test these disciples. He's going to draw out their heart. And here's what I mean. Earlier in Jesus' ministry, he sent out his disciples, and he actually told them, if somebody is willing to take you into their house, stay there. And from there, you minister in the town. If, they're, if, if somebody's willing to show you that sort of hospitality, you stay there, even if a better opportunity opens up and the next-door neighbor has a nicer pool in the backyard, right? That's what he told his disciples, okay? If they don't show you hospitality, he said, you dust off your feet, you go to another town. Okay, so I think what Jesus is doing is he's giving the disciples the opportunity. Will you welcome this herald of the gospel? Will you welcome this one who is proclaiming uh, the grace of God? So, uh, I, I believe he's testing their hearts. And they, they do. They invite him in. They show him hospitality. It's getting dark. It would probably not be safe to travel. So, Jace, uh, Jesus obliges here at the end of verse 29. Now, what's funny to me is like, they invite him in in verse 29. By verse 30, Jesus is like hosting the party. Um, so he's the one like breaking bread uh, and blessing it and passing it out. It's unclear how that happened, but it's clear that he is the one doing it. Now, the biggest point of this meal is that Jesus is physically present with his disciples. At least these two right here. In and around Jerusalem, following his death, he is manifesting himself physically to his people. Now, still at this moment, the veil is not lifted from their eyes, right? And then as Jesus is breaking the bread and, and distributing it, the veil comes off, right? Their eyes were opened. 
It says there in verse 31. Now notice the past tense. It's something that happened to them. It's not something that they accomplished on their own. These two guys did not figure it out at the exact same moment and come to the exact same conclusion by their own willpower and, and smarts. God lifted the veil from their eyes. It's sometimes called a, a divine passive. It indicates that God is the one who is acting. And so just quickly we might say, even what we understand spiritually then is subject to God's will. He opens their eyes and they recognize Jesus. And as they did, like as they recognize Jesus is physically present with them, they also learn really quickly he's got a new type of body. (laughs) He's got a glorified body. So he vanishes from their sight. So next next time I'm able to preach, um, I want us to kind of look at how they run to the disciples, what the disciples say, what they say to the disciples. Um, We'll get to that. But today, I want us to think about their initial reaction there in verse 32. Did not our hearts burn within us? Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened up the scriptures? They were slow of heart at the beginning, Jesus said. Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets spoke. They were slow of heart at the beginning. But as Jesus opened the scripture and opened their eyes... The dawning realization that they have is that this is indeed the fulfillment of God's plan. They've seen it now from the Scriptures. right? And and their eyes are open to receive it. That Jesus has brought about a greater deliverance than they could ever imagine. That this is the Son of God, the Son of David, the suffering servant, the seed of the woman, the Son of Man from Daniel 7, the Messiah that they were longing for, the one who would bring about redemption to Israel. They recognized it. They saw how the crucifixion was necessary, and their hearts were on fire. Right? And how comforting for us. Right? We've kind of teased the idea like, man, what, wish we could be there. Right? How comforting for us that Jesus didn't say like, hey guys, I'm here, like right when he showed up and kind of revealed himself to him. Instead, what did he do? He did what, what we might have the opportunity to, to study now. He pointed them to the word. And we do have that. Right? We don't have the time machine. But we do have the word that we get to study the very thing that is in your lap or on your bookshelf or on your phone that you, know, you can have read to you by someone else. Right? And when you get into it and you read it again and again and again and, and the Lord opens your eyes, your heart burns within you as you see the glory of God in Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 1, 12, I read, I read 10 and 11 earlier, but I love this. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you... And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which the angels long to look. I just love that. The prophets knew they weren't serving themselves. They were serving you. They were serving the church. And the truths that they recorded and the, and the, the, the revelation of the mystery of Christ, it's something the angels long to peer into. They're staggered by the gospel. 
the gospel that we get to preach and proclaim and be reminded of and hold fast to. And this morning that you might believe for your salvation. You know, some, we'll end with this. Some have wondered if the breaking of bread is sort of about the Lord's Supper here. Was it the reenactment of the Lord's Supper that opened their eyes? Now, I would suggest that given that these two disciples weren't at the Lord's Supper, that's probably not the point of this passage. I think this passage is more about the power of the Word of God. So then what's the significance of the meal? I think the significance of the meal is Jesus' fellowshipping with His disciples. And that's a picture of the outcome of the gospel. Reconciliation with God through Christ Jesus, pictured in Jesus sharing a meal with His disciples. And this is the hope of the gospel. This is what Christ has purchased for us. And He purchased it through His blood and resurrection. Now, as you go back to the well and drink from the Scriptures, keep this reality in mind that Jesus, if you are in Christ this morning, Jesus is not ashamed to call you a brother or sister. He's not ashamed to call you friend. And that's the reality that we need to be grounded in. Right? The Bible doesn't transport us to some fantasy land. Right? It it doesn't help us to escape for a while from the, from the real demands of life. I've got real life out there, but I'm going to escape into this book. No, the Scriptures actually root us in reality. It grounds us in reality. And what is that reality? The death, burial, resurrection, and exaltation of Christ for our salvation and the glory of God according to the Scriptures. It was necessary for Christ to go through that. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the promises, the prophecies, the law, the failures of your people. All of it, all of it just points us to Christ. May we worship and glorify him. May we learn to love him more and more. May we be compelled by his love to glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.